Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. Hi, Andrew. Welcome back. Yeah, yeah. My bushman look. It's pretty wild, isn't it? New 2023, new Andrew. Yeah, no. New Andrew or new Anthel, I'm not sure. Okay, well, let's kick off. Lovely to see you. And yeah. good to be back. Nice to be back. Lots happened over the last couple of months. Yeah, um, to catch up on. And a lot of things that started happening last year have now landed this year. So I, I guess we've got some interesting things around some award changes which are odd. Yeah. So the Fair Work Commission have said they're going to change 78 of the modern awards, ones with shutdown clauses. You're no longer going to be able to direct employees to take unpaid leave during the Christmas shutdown. If you want to do that, you have to do it through a mutual agreement with the employees. That's this, going to work. Yeah, this was complained by the unions and employer associations because, you know, what's to stop an employee just saying, I've got no more leave left, so. And isn't it just so odd that the players who aren't, the people, the employer associations and unions continue to stuff up workplaces by creating things which just can't work. Anyway. And they fought against it. They uh, fought against the change of the Not too hard. <laughs> anyway, so that's the shutdown. We've also got the domestic violence issues. Yes, so that all went live yesterday on the 1st of February, 10 days of paid family and domestic violence leave for most businesses. Small businesses, it comes live 1st of April, I believe, but they still have the unpaid domestic violence provisions. Also changes to pay slips, you cannot put on there if an employee is taking domestic family and domestic violence leave or what the balance of their entitlement is, which makes sense for safety reasons. But you've obviously got to find a mechanism. You still have to keep recording it. And let people know. Yes, but not on payslips. All right, well, let's go to our next subject. And this is one which I think for most HR managers, we we really need to drive this home. It's very common for an HR manager to be told, look, we need to get this new EA over the line. Can we do it without the unions being involved? And we need these clauses to work for financial reasons. And the HR managers go, hopefully not. Okay, I can do that and they do it in a way which puts them at risk of going to jail. I want HR managers to understand you have civil liability around the correct payment methodology, you have civil liability around whether someone's a contractor or not, you must exercise independent judgment. But when you come to to be involved in the creation of representations under statutory declarations from enterprise agreements, make sure you're doing the right thing, you have people representative of the enterprise agreement and you don't make dishonest representations, or you will go to jail. Yeah, which is what's happened here. Okay. They have been reported and referred to the federal police, I believe. Yeah, this is the hot walk case. It's just crazy yeah. case. Yeah, where you've got the declarations that go in supporting the enterprise agreement untruthfully represent... Yeah, false misrepresentations. ...around whether it hits the boot test, and the representatives who who rely upon for the purpose of the organisation. So, in other words, the people who are meant to be in the classification saying we think this is a good idea are management. Yeah, that's right. So the employees who voted up the agreement aren't even covered by the agreement. So I just we did this because HR are commonly pushed into corners where they forget they have an independent professional duty to act lawfully. Yeah. I'm not suggesting you'd ever not. But remember, you must stand alone because there is civil liability throughout the Fair Work Act for you and there is now very clearly criminal liability around enterprise agreements. And it will fall on you, not the person putting the pressure on That's exactly right. So, look, let's go to the next one, okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about a decision of Commissioner Johns. Ambulance Victoria. Ambulance Victoria case. 
This is the case where Ambulance Victoria had a good business reason for denying flexibility, but they failed to advise the, the person. And then Commissioner Johns went down the path of examining whether... And tore it apart. And tore it apart. Now, he shouldn't have in respect of the current legislation. At the, the legislation at the time that the decision was And I guess yeah. the reason we've raised this is at the end of this, what Commissioner Johns found is that this person with three kids, they could have fitted it to make it work and there could be a good business reason to do it. Yeah, to they, they were trying gaps. to change the shift hours, yeah. For Nina and I, it wasn't the appropriate course for the old legislation, but it provides a window into what the future is going to be because your obligation is to inquire deeply into these things and not simply say, look, we've got shift work and it doesn't work. Yeah. You've got to dig deeper to see whether there is a business case that can be created around this person. And it's supported not only by this provision, but the obligations that sit under the new legislation that's coming through then the positive duty to actually meet the obligation, particularly of women in the workplace. So the future will be much harder and requires much deeper thinking. And that's all this case is about for yeah. us is to say, Look, you might not like what he said about the old legislation, but it's the way every commission is going to look in the new legislation. Essentially, okay. if you can do it, you will have to do it. And that's what the law is now. Yeah. Okay, so let's it's just jump on now to a workers' comp decision, which I think is fascinating, and I could be alone besides Kim in this. <laughs> what we see when people bring workers' comp claims for mental health-related issues is the world is much more complex than you think. So, yes, there's behaviour at work which is impacting a person's mental health. But it's very common that there's behaviour and incidents outside. Yeah. This is an incredibly sad case, which I won't dwell on too long, but it's a woman who had a cancer diagnosis, had shocking relationships problems, and then had some really sad, unfortunate events that led to suicidal behaviour. She was also in the, in the part of this being managed around her performance. And she said the reason I'm making a claim is the performance management issue. And yeah, consultantly confined to that. Yeah, and what the court said is, look, there needs to be a balancing exercise that goes on, which is what is causative of the incapacity to work. That's the test, by the way. And what the court said is, well, what caused these problems were not the performance management. They were legitimate, properly run, and they were done correctly. So there was reasonable management. What was causing this were external factors. And when you're briefing people and when you're making decisions, you must weigh what are these factors. For us, it's very complex because the regulator does the IME yeah. in most states and territories. Hard to get any control over the process. So that means in Victoria, the sole jurisdiction where you can direct someone to undertake a medical examination, you must make sure that you're close enough and know what those factors are. You must get that information out. But how do I get it to the IME? It's the relationship with your insurer. So remember, whenever you're dealing with these really difficult very painful and fractious issues, make sure you've got the insurer on side, you are being honest about what is happening and you are telling them what the issue is because the regulator wants to accept the claim. Yeah, that's your really only hope. <laughs> okay, now look at a fun couple-minute case about the firefighters in New South Wales. <laughs> Another anti-vax one. Really. Another anti-vax one, and I know we'll have two or three people write offensive emails to us <laughs> on that, but probably one of the best judgments that says in the clearest terms that you run an argument which is what they ran the argument is there is no evidence that not being vaccinated will not make you get sick i just want you all think about that comment from yeah, that. That's just what the union ran. yeah that's the sort of comment that deserves a slap in the face just to walk through a door and say that because our whole immunization process is about creating a healthy world but unquestionably as a matter of fact if you're unvaccinated you run the risk higher risk of getting infected and spreading that that, that issue to other people 
So it is a safety issue. Yeah. And for the first really clear time, I came out and said, look, this is a safety law issue. And if you've got a safety law reason for doing it, it's lawful. And if it's reasonable for the workplace involved, it's lawful and reasonable. A failure to comply that would be a breach of a lawful and reasonable direction and would permit termination. End of story. There is nothing more to say about this. There's, it doesn't make any sense. Like it's like going to put safety risks for themselves. You're going to get those people. in. You're going to get those in. I don't else. care. You're get them. There's no logical justification. <laughs> Otherwise, that you could say it's not a safety issue. <laughs> Just, Let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on there. Okay, we're going to deal with the issue today, which I think is being really misunderstood, and it's being dragged by lawyers into talking about what the changes are going to be rather than what is the impact. So, From a compliance, yeah. I guess, yeah. So we've got the change in respect of work and under the secure jobs. In really simple terms, this is what it does. It creates positive duty around the way women are treated in a workplace, not just sexual harassment, nice. but around discriminations or characteristics. Now, a characteristic of, a, of an attribute, women, is this. I say to Nina, okay, Nina, look, it'd be, um, we really do need you to work full-time, and I know that's a bit difficult because, after all, you're probably going to have kids, okay? You notice I've moved from an attribute to talking about a story about what happens to women who are Nina's age. That's a characteristic, okay? Now, the important part of the change legislation that's saying is you can't allow any of that to occur. And you can't allow have an environment which permits, even if it's not directed at Nina, an expression of that. Yeah, uh, otherwise it's condoning that behaviour. Yeah, and then it goes down this path of saying, now don't forget, all of these things which are protected under respect at work and the new process of being able to litigate it more simply under yes. Fair Work Act yeah, is underwritten by these actually being psychological hazards in safety law. So, Which have always existed. <laughs> but are now much more frankly yeah. described. So you've got this incredible clarity. Discrimination is much easier to prove. You've got a positive duty. You've got the hostile work environment that says behaviours that aren't directed towards a person are still unlawful. What does that mean as you wash it through? So let me talk about what it means and then we'll talk about what you've got to do because what both Nina and I want to say is the next person who says to you, oh, you just need to tweak the policy, I give you permission to hit them because it's stupid and wrong. No, we are not condoning violence. Are we? Okay, we're not. I don't give you, I withdraw that permission, (laughs) but I want you to say to them, just go and think for a bit. The effect of these changes is dramatic because it goes through the safety lens and says, to actually execute a positive duty, you must know the evidence of risk. So that means you need to have a system in place that collects the evidence which may be very different in every environment. And it's not about Andrew's at risk because he harasses people. It is culturally, and these are cultural risks, what are the types of permitted behaviours that exist in the workplace that create a potentially hostile environment? And as Nina said, as we were chatting before, remember, you have three steps. It starts off with a sort of hostile environment which has somebody with a rude drawing on their locker it builds to a stage where people are treated different, discrimination, yeah. and it ends up in sexual harassment. Yeah, I think that's the, the main mistake, Andrew, that everyone focuses on the sexual harassment side when it's crystallised into something that's clearly offensive, but they ignore the fact that there's been all these underlying factors in the background that's built up to that point, all the discrimination, all the banter, inappropriate jokes that they've said, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. None of that 
is conducive to a safe work and environment. And they're the hazards. Exactly. And that's what makes it a hostile work environment. We've got to find the evidence of where the hazards are. That's actually a deep dive. It's evidence-based. Okay. Yeah, it has to be. Once you've got that, you can then start to determine what are the actions around positive duty. But the positive duty is a cultural issue. It is not about merely a policy. It's about saying, how do I align our productive output with the behaviours that protect women in the environment? And it can't be a blanket approach, which is why you can't just tweak a policy. It has to be tailored, like Andrew said, to that evidence. Otherwise, it's not going to work under safety law or employment law. And a system requires you to have a plan that's yeah. built upon that evidence, which yeah. is risk-based. It requires you then to develop the process underneath, which will be policy, contractual, yeah. but also actually how we do it. And then monitor it. Then, well, then let me go. <laughs> There's a bit more than monitoring. We get to monitoring. I've then got to actually have a training regime that's built, that actually educates and makes people competent. I've then got to make sure supervisors know that, yeah. lead it, and are satisfied that the people who work for them are competent and executing every day. I then start to monitor it, <laughs> and, and then I must report back against the plan. That's what a system is. It's not tweaking a bloody policy. No, it's so much more in-depth. So I want you to think about this as a cultural phenomenon, okay? This is something that's going to take two or three years to affect. I can tell you in all the workplaces that we deal with, we see the symbols of that failure in different workplaces because we tolerate so many of those small, hostile work environment behaviours. And what Nina and I have been trying to say all last year and again this year is, once you can demonstrate there's a hostile workplace, you're in strife. Yep. Because when the eventual big claim of discrimination or harassment comes, what you've got because of the positive duty is evidence of condemnation, yep. which means the claim which would have had a general damages of ten or $15,000 suddenly has a $200,000. It opens the door wide open because then if there's a hostile work environment, many people from that can make claims as well. So yep. it's not just confined to one specific issue at all. And the last part is... The unions are dying in front of us, but they are already in the environments that Nina and I are working in, starting to grab hold of psychological hazards as a yeah. new tool, and they will take this because they are actually allowed to bring the proceedings. Yeah. So they're allowed to bring representative proceedings to run these things, which will become a way of them marking a new footprint in your workplace. Now, fortunately, unions are historically misogynist and have not done well with sexual harassment stuff, mainly because of their own problems internally. But that is also changing, and so is the gender makeup of unions. So this will become a new method of attack. Yep. The answer for us is, actually, this is a really good moral place. It creates an environment which is attractive for retention. It makes work better, more productive. It's a good thing. Yeah. So there's a good purpose behind it, but the change needs to be done based on evidence, it needs to be incremental, it needs to be reported, monitored, managed, you need to grow it. And everyone has to own it. You can't just hand it off to the HR manager and say, you roll it out and it'll be fine. It involves every part of the organisation living and breathing this new culture. So let's talk about just the steps that it takes. So the first part is get the evidence right, okay? The second part is when you've got the evidence, identify what is the low-hanging fruit you can achieve immediately and build that as a competency into the people who are leading, okay? Do you see this is not about policy yet? At the moment, we're just finding out what the problem is. Imagine going to a doctor and the doctor says, take the medication. You go, why? And he goes, I reckon it'll work. I reckon it'll work. That's tweaking a policy. We first of all need to know what the problem is 
because that's how we allocate resources. Reasonable practicability says identify a hazard, determine the level of risk, institute a control using the resource of the organisation. So you must identify that particular budgetary resource that executes that. Build a competency to execute against it so that your leaders can manage and see how it aligns with productivity because it does. Now, that's just stage one before we even get to writing the process. Then once we've done the plan, we say, well, what are the bits of the puzzle we need in process to do that? The competency part of it, supervision and management part of it. The training. The training part. Yeah, there's some policy and procedure in there. There'll be some contractual variations. As they're we, small. They're as, tiny. As we rewrite what is yeah. serious misconduct for the purpose of summary termination. Yeah. All pretty straightforward. But then we come down and say, well, what does the most effective method of training look like? And as Nina and I said, most of this is day-to-day touchpoint training yeah. of me supervising Nina and saying, relationships matter. Tell me what's happening with your staff. Yeah. What have you seen? And we start doing hazard identification together and go, yeah. well, what do we need to do? We call upon the resource, the organisation. They say, you can't let that happen. We go, good, okay, what do I do? Every day it's that accrued yeah. learning that allows you to develop a safe place. That's the only training that's going to work, not that once-a-year online training. Yeah. So yeah, Take off your compliance Isn't sexual harassment training so successful? Oh. Once a year, don't do this. And the first five files we get every January are sexual harassment yeah, claims. Exactly. So what we're trying to say to you is please don't listen to the easy way. Don't take the compliance story where people go, I'll come in and do a policy and change a contract because that's the smallest bit in this big puzzle. The big bit is getting it right. Yep. And the prosecutorial risk that sits around this, the litigation risks around this are massive. And as far as retention and attraction of talent go, you have an environment that doesn't address this, your business is damaged. I just want to say the most common excuse I hear is, look, it's too much, it's so overwhelming, how can we even tackle it? But if you just take each of the steps of the plan one bit at a time and chip away at it, that's how you change the culture. Like Andrew said, it's touchpoint training. It's not rehauling your whole system at once and spending thousands and thousands of dollars on it because that doesn't work. No, and the obvious one is it's normally language which is the problem. Yeah. So the hostile work environment is usually around language and attitude. So it's not hard to have the conversation that identifies the risk and then when I'm managing somebody saying, look, this is what we see the risk is, can you not use this language? This is what I want you to do and let's talk about me daily how you're going with it. Yeah. And don't worry if you stuff up, but come back to me and tell me. Yeah. Okay, easy. Well, that's very different than what you've probably ever heard about <laughs> respect at work and the secure jobs part of it because that's actually the truth. We don't want people doing quick fixes. We want them getting it right. Truth from lawyers, shocking. And then we should sort of tap at that stage, shouldn't we? But it's early in the year. We start lying later on. Okay, so let's go on to our problem today, which sort of conflates all those issues for a bit of a test. And Nina's going to read it because my voice is gone. <laughs> So Brett is a production manager at Strawman Pty Ltd, Strawman, a wholesale nursery for the landscaping market. He had around 230 employees working through a linear house system from germination, seedling, cultivation, potting and packaging. It was a rural business employing mostly women frequently of non-English speaking backgrounds or at least where it is not their first language. He had seen over time that the male supervisors assumed the women were unskilled at problem solving, no good on tools or with machines. 
Their habit was to distribute the grunt work, which was repetitive and backbreaking to women, and joke between them that type of work was women's work. The nature of the work meant they had less chance to progress, higher injury rates, and it was dreary, uninteresting work well beneath their actual skills and intelligence. Amy was a 27-year-old Malaysian woman who had married the local barman at the hotel nearest to the work site. He was 56. She had worked in IT in Malaysia and in Melbourne when she first moved to Australia and had a Bachelor of Computer Science from the University of Malaysia. She fell pregnant shortly after marrying her husband in Australia and had to give up hopes of a white-collar job as none were available in the country town. Brett saw Daniel, Amy's boss, speak in a slow, silly way to Amy. Amy was fluent in English. There was no need. When Amy raised ways of doing the work more effectively with greater rotations, he would say things like, stick to your knitting, love. What would you know? Come on, just do the women's work and stop trying to be a smart ass." Like with the other young women around him, he often looked inappropriately at women like Amy, ogling them and making snide jokes with the other guys about their relative attractiveness. It was well known he did it. Brett had told him to stop it, but sometimes found himself giggling at Daniel's looks and jokes. The impact of the behaviour caused Amy to withdraw. She didn't want to go to work and her husband told Brett, you guys are killing her. Brett spoke to her and she cried and had to go home. She was angry and humiliated that her husband had spoken to her boss. She went to see a doctor who gave her a certificate of capacity alleging bullying and sexual harassment. The doctor said it was unsafe for her to return to work. All right, so now we've got the questions. We're doing the questions slightly differently this year because we're sort of broadening out what the answers are going to be rather than just saying yeses or noes. <laughs> that's, my, that's my improvement. <laughs> so the first question is, were there psychological hazards and what were they? There were so many. Like putting even aside the sexual harassment. Let's talk about what psychological, you know, the usual ones in yes. work design. Was so there low job demands. Yep. That she was doing jobs that were completely beneath her, low recognition. She basically had no support provided to her as well. Just yeah. things that people think are small that so remember at the time. In psychological hazards, they fall into two parts, the agrariously wrong ones of sexual harassment and discrimination. Bullying, yep. Okay. They were all present as well, yeah. I just might like to add. But then you had the other five that sit there, which are reward recognition, utilisation of skill, volumes of work. Yep. All of those elements are wrong and go towards a particular attribute. So... That draws in respect at work and fair work issues as well. But the important thing here is every single psychological hazard identified in the regulations was present. Yeah, and drew in safety law as well. Yeah. So what could happen to who? The answer is this is a prosecution waiting to happen. So when people think about sexual harassment and discrimination, historically we go, well, general protections or discrimination. Yeah. But the change in the legislation in safety law although it's always existed, as we've talked about before, is directed at stopping this using actual directions from the regulator. So you could get notices, like stop orders basically saying you must stop this behaviour immediately. You will certainly get improvement notices and you will get a prosecution. And because of the historical nature of this, so prosecutions and safety arise, particularly where there is a knowledge of a past behaviour, a failure to respond to it, and then a behaviour causes damage. So they're the factual base that trigger a prosecution. Yeah. They're here, aren't they, Nate? Yeah, they are. And the thing with safety prosecutions is they just don't just look at that one issue. We all know that psychological hazards is a huge focus area for all the regulators this year. If they get wind that there's some psychological hazards here, they're going to look at the wider organisation and see how far this goes. So we've got 
there could be a prosecution? The answer is there's certainly a primary duty breach, okay? So what you can show there is there's hazards that exist. They haven't been analysed as to the level of risk that should be high to extreme. Yeah. There's been the only control that's there's been no used is, is to say no on one small part that's of it. It's not a control. Yeah, no, it's not a control. And there's no allocation of resources. So they haven't done everything reasonably practical. So it's not a safe working environment, the lowest level risk. There's no training that shows that they're trying like to prevent it. Really. So that's the next mm-hmm. level up of risk. There's no proper supervision, no, next level. No systems of work. Really. No systems of work at all. So that means it's the highest level of primary duty breach, but that means it throws up to officer risk under Section 144 and the related Section 27s in the other legislations, the model legislation. Yep. So what we've just shown you is you've gone from a path which is an escalation up to the highest primary duty breach to officer liability. Let's just drop back down again and say, well, that's bad. That's three hundred to six hundred thousand dollar type penalties. Yeah. Maybe a bit more. Maybe a bit less. But then you've really got reckless endangerment because this is something that everyone understands causes serious risk of harm or damage, and they were careless about any intervention. Yeah, that's the thing. Like a lot of employers think, oh, I've said no once, then that's fine. That still means you're reckless because you haven't actually implemented a control to reduce or eliminate the risk. So this is a go-to-jail risk. I just want to, yeah. I guess what I want to say is we think we're talking about discrimination, we think we're talking about harassment, but what we're actually talking about first is the risk of someone going to jail yep. and massive reputational damage in the public arena, okay? So, look, that's what I wanted to start with, and then the next question is did the behaviour breach any obligations under the new respect at work and secure job provisions and what could only do? Yeah, it's a hostile a brief, work environment. Yeah, so you've got a hostile work environment, Definitely sexual harassment claims. Definitely straight discrimination. Straight all the way to yeah. the federal court. Yeah, discrimination. Yeah. It's all there. Every single breach you could have that relates to gender yeah. lives. The next question is what would you do about it? And the answer is you've now got this buffet of things you can do. You can go through the Respect Act discrimination and you've got that lovely pleading of hostile work environment, which means you've got a really big general damages claim. But why wouldn't you just go through the federal court dispute process under the new secure jobs? Yeah, it's so much faster. File in the federal court. You've got judges there who are very experienced, who are happy to make big awards, and it's over and done in 18 months, whereas the other part's probably a two- to three-year rollout. So suddenly within two months you're going to be in for conciliation and you're going to be hit with this issue around both costs and GD, general damages, and reputational damage, damage too. which is going to come. And you're not going to be settling for thirty or forty thousand because you've got no. a hostile work environment. You're going to be settling for one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars. Scary stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And because of the hostile work environment, maybe the union is bringing it, and you might have penalties. They'll probably seek penalties. Yeah, as well. and you'll have five or six plaintiffs in it, not one. Yeah. Because of the hostile work environment, it will be catastrophic. Because if it goes to court, it's a three week trial. Yeah. And remember, proving hostile work environment is a couple of photographs. It's very, very simple. Yeah. You know, there's a picture. Here's a joke someone made. That's it. Yeah, Hurrah. because everyone always does it over in writing as well, Andrew. I know, too. It's so stupid. Yeah, so very easy to prove. Okay. So we go, how are we going for time? I'm going to check my phone. We're going pretty well. We've got oh, one okay. minute and 43 cool. seconds to go, and that's about how long workers' comp <laughs> deserves. The workers' comp issue here looks a bit confusing because you can see there is another form of causation that exists, and that is the husband's intervention is the thing that made her humiliated. That's what actually upset her. Yeah, yeah. and why she didn't come to work. But the answer is 
it's a furphy. As soon as you can sow a breach of safety law, discrimination, harassment law or the Fair Work Act, there is no defence of reasonable management it's action. clearly tied to the so workplace. this is a compensable claim and the fact that her husband intervened is part of a sequence of causation but not causative and therefore this would be successful. She would never be back at work. The size of the employer means this premium impact anywhere in Australia is north of $500,000. Yeah, you've got to remember that it's the substantial cause. It doesn't have to be one of them, and clearly the substantial So I just want you to remember that. You've got this risk of a penalty. You've got a risk of damages. None of them are as much as the premium risk that just occurred in workers' compensation. So, look, that's us for this week. (laughs) Yeah. Wasn't that fast? Just flies. Lovely to be back. Great to have you here. And thank you all for watching. Lovely to see you all again. See you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.